0: Thank you, Shanda. Good morning. I want to paint a picture for you. It's 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning. Now, for some of you, that's a little early, but 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning. You're going out on the lake with two good friends. Now, you're not going fishing. I know that will disappoint some of you, and there are fishermen on the lake, but you get out on the lake... You get in the water, you put your slalom ski on, you say, hit it, and you're gliding across perfectly glass water. You're going from one side to the other, your elbows almost touching the water, sprays shooting up nice and high. You're gliding, it just feels like you're floating on clouds. Your two friends and you make two or three runs, two or three sets, get back in the boat, head home, take showers, and you're at the eight o'clock service. That's a good Sunday morning, <laughs> and that happened to, to me a, a few years ago when we were in La Crosse, Wisconsin, when some friends came up to visit. I've water skied since I was really young. Uh, our family had a boat, so about third grade, I started water skiing, and uh, started slalom skiing when I was sixteen. Uh, I taught water skiing, and uh, at our camp. Taught uh, I was waterfront director, so I taught water skiing and swimming and lifeguarding all that kind of stuff. And so I've skied for most of my life. And one of the things I've learned is I've taught people to water ski because I've taught hundreds and hundreds of students, both students and adults, how to water ski over the years uh, through all the different things, either boats that we've owned or a uh, camp or whatever. And... One of the things I've learned is that there are three simple rules that you teach people to follow, and if they can follow those three simple rules, they'll get up and ski in no time flat. The first one is you keep your arms straight. Just like they're in casts, you never bend your arms. And when you're teaching somebody water ski, you tell them about these three simple rules, oh yeah, yeah, I can do that, I can keep my arms straight, no problem, no problem. Second rule is you bend your knees. You bend your knees up to your chest you lean forward into the skis and you stay in that sitting position till you come up on top of the water and your butt clears the water. Then you can stand, but you still keep your knees bent. So knees bent, arms straight, and they say, oh yeah, yeah, I can do that, I can do that. Um, keep your skis about shoulder width apart, ski tips out of the water, um, and hold that position. Yep, I can do that. Three simple rules, no problem, yes, I'm, I can get up and do that. Now I've had people that have taken those three rules seriously, and gotten up and skied around the lake the first try. Very few people do that, but it's happened. Um, Most people fall a couple times until they get that kind of pattern down, and I'll come back around with the boat and say, do you know why you fell? I have no clue. said, you bent your arms. I can tell because you went backwards uh, when you fell. And they said, well, I thought I had to pull myself up to get on top of the water. No, keep your arms straight, or they'll Or they'll come back around and they'll say, do you know how you fell or why you fell? No, I don't know. "Said you bent your, you did your knees straight, and that made you go over the front of your skis because it buried the tips of your skis. I didn't even know I did that. I just, I thought I had to stand up. So once they follow those three simple rules, they're getting up and skiing around the lake. Now, you may be wondering, why are we talking about water skiing on a Sunday morning for a sermon? Well, there's a point to this. Um, I've been reading through the Old Testament, New Testament, Psalms and Proverbs like many of you have uh, this year in the one-year Bible. And I've seen all kinds of different instances through Scripture where um, people have said, yes, I will follow you, God, but I want to do this other thing. Kind of like the water skiers I've taught. Yes, I can do those three simple rules, but I thought I had to pull myself up or I thought I had to stand up too soon. Um, they tried to twist or try to change the rules or the, or the procedure so that they, they thought they could do it better. So as we're reading through um, this scripture, I've, these scriptures through the one year Bible, and a lot of you are reading that along with us, um, there's all kinds of different instances in scripture where people have said, yes, but, and that's the name of the sermon this morning, yes, but. There's a few examples I want to share with you, and you'll, if you've been reading through, uh, you'll remember these, and if not, you've probably remembered some of these stories. Adam and Eve, Genesis chapter 2 and 3. God created Adam, God created Eve out of the, the rib of Adam. They had this idealistic place in the garden. They got to walk and talk with God. They had access to everything, all the animals, all the trees, all the fruit, except for one tree. And yes, we will follow you, God. Yes, we'll do what you've asked us to. Yes, this is such a great time to be able to just have this intimate relationship with you. But I want to try that fruit of that tree. I know he said no, but maybe it's okay. I know there was Satan tempting him, but maybe it's okay for me. Yes, I'll do everything else. But just this one time, I'm going to take a bite of that, that tree, that fruit. Abram. Genesis chapter 12, Abram's later name was uh, changed to Abraham. God came to Abraham and said, you are a righteous man, and I'm going to, or you're going to be known for generations as a friend of God. Abraham said, I'm in. What do you want me to do? And so he said, pack up. God said, pack up your stuff and go to a land that I'm going to show you. So he moved his family, and they started walking across wherever they're going to this next place they were going to go. And along the way, different things were happening. One of the things that happened was God said, we are, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's going to be like vast. I mean, you can't even count all the people that are going to be descendants of yours. Abraham's reaction? <laughs> started laughing. He and Sarah both started laughing. You've got to be kidding me, God. Do you know how old we are? Some of us have said that. Do you know how old we are? There's no way you're going to be able to do that. Um, so yes, I'll follow you, but I don't think you can pull off what you're saying that you can do. A couple other times, they were going through different parts, of the, different parts of the nations, going through the nation's lands, and there were pharaohs and there were kings, and these kings and pharaohs had reputations, and the reputations of some of those pharaohs and kings were they collected beautiful women to be part of their harem or to be their wives, and Sarah was a beautiful woman, and so to get around that, Abraham and Sarah made this, this pact. You know, when we go into this nation, I don't, Abraham's saying, I don't want to be killed, uh, so that you can be taken away from me. You know, God has a plan for us, so I'm going to help him out here a little bit. We're going to go in, and we're going to tell the king and the pharaoh and the people around us that you're my sister, and that's going to be our cover story, so that I won't be killed and you won't be taken from me um, with me being killed. And they did that. Actually, they did that twice. And it was only a partial truth because actually Sarah was his half-sister, and so there was some truth to it, but we're just going to hedge the truth a little bit because, God, we're going to help you out because if I die, then, you know, this, all these promises aren't going to go on. So we're just going to help you out a little bit. Yes, I believe. Yes, I want to follow you, but let me do it this way over here to help you out. Then we see the nation of Israel, and if you've been reading through, they're just like up and down all the time. Uh, they come out of Egypt Uh, Moses is leading them, they get to Mount Sinai, Moses goes up the mountain, gets a bunch of different things that God's telling them, telling him to tell the people, Uh, basically the Ten Commandments hadn't been written yet, but he came down to the mountain and said, here's what God says, don't have any other gods before me, and a bunch of other different things, people said, yes, yes, we will follow God, no problem at all, Moses goes back up to the mountain, God is writing the Ten Commandments down, and the people are like, he's been up there a long time. What if he's dead? What if he never comes back down? What if, you know, all the what ifs start. And we don't have anything to worship down here. You know, we worship this kind of this calf, this golden calf when we're in Egypt, and it seemed to do okay with us. Aaron, make us a golden calf because we don't know what the future is. Yes, we will follow God, but maybe this golden calf will also protect us while we're waiting for Moses. Have no other gods before me? Yes, but we're gonna hedge our bets a little bit and uh, have Aaron make us a golden calf to worship. We see all kinds of different kings that were established in Israel. And these kings uh, came along, each one did, some did great things, some did not so great things in God's eyes. But these kings were established, especially early on, and uh, the kings would say, yes, I'll follow you, God. I know that you will give us prosperity. I know that you'll give us protection. You'll be successful. You'll protect our land and our people. Um, But, you know, I need people to fear me. I see all these other kings, these other nations, and the one thing that I see is that the people fear the king, and that's how he holds on to his power. So I'm going to institute different laws. I'm going to do different kinds of things so I can build my wealth, so I can build my reputation, so I can build my power, so I can remain king and follow you, God. I'm not going to worry about, you know, I'm following you, but I have to do these other things to help you out, to make sure I maintain my power. In the New Testament, we see religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, and we see them that say, yes, I will follow the laws. I'll follow all these laws, especially in public. But, you know, we're going to make a few extra laws because we're not sure that the common people will be able to follow all the laws unless we add a few more things to their plate, a few more burdens to go through. Um, and, but we're going to follow them all publicly, God. Oh, you know, but you know, there's some things that we might have to do a little bit undercover. We're going to make sure that people don't know about it, so they see our public persona, you know, our Instagram looking lives, and they're going to see that and say, yes, those people are following God to a T. But underneath, in the shadows, uh, we're going to have to do a few other things to help you out, God. You know, there's this guy named Jesus that claims to be you, and we know that that's something that you don't want to happen, so... We're going to, even though it breaks our laws at night so the people don't see us, we're going to arrest him. We're going to have some illegal trials. The people will never know about it, so they'll just still think that we're above board and we'll be the ones, the examples they can follow. But we're going to do those things at night illegally so we can help you out, God, because we're not sure that um, this Jesus guy should still be alive. We go through the New Testament. We see the followers of Jesus. Judas, yes, I'll be one of the inner 12, but everybody needs a little cash for a rainy day. We come to Ananias and Sapphira and Acts. Uh, Pastor Trini's already talked about them. Yes, we'll sell our property and give it to the church. You're under no obligation to do that, but they sold their property and said, brought the money to the church to be distributed among whatever needs there were and said, yes, we brought all of the money from our property, but they held some back. You know, you need a little bit of money for retirement. Um, they weren't honest about that. You see, the Corinthian church, and we just read about this this week this church, this new church full of new believers, they're growing in their faith, and uh, but yet they don't want to deal with the sin that's in the church. There was a sexual sin going on in their church that was being pointed out. And it's like, yeah, but if we deal with it, you know. People might leave the church. There might be a controversy. You know, maybe they quit giving. We just don't want to deal with the issues of the church. We just want to be nice to each other and not deal with the issues. Yes, God, we'll follow you, but let's not deal with these things over here. All through Scripture, we see this pattern. Yes, I will follow you, but let me bend the rules. Let me push back on it. Let me do it a better way. Let me make it easier for myself. And throughout Scripture, we also see God's God's response to that yes, but problem. All the time, he has patience. He's giving people a chance to repent and turn from their sin. God has patience. He doesn't ignore the stuff, doesn't ignore the sin, but he has patience with people because he wants to see them restored. He has forgiveness and restoration. When people turn and confess their sin, God with open arms welcomes them, forgives them, restores them in their fellowship and in their faith. But there's times where he's turned his back on people or even nations. Sometimes that's for a period of time. Sometimes that's forever. We also see through scripture that there's punishment, punishment that he does. Sometimes that's immediate. Sometimes it's delayed. Sometimes it's restrained and sometimes it's harsh. In Hebrews chapter 11 There's a a chapter that we also often call the the heroes of the faith. It lists several people in in Hebrews chapter 11. And these are the ones that it mentions, Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, and many other believers. All these people said yes to God. They had their but moments uh, where they did stuff that was not in God's plan and not pleasing to God. But the difference was, and one of the reasons they're listed in that the heroes of the faith in that chapter is because they repented and they're restored and they continue to grow in their faith. And that's a pattern that God wants us to have. We all blow it. There's all things that we do. And, and sometimes we try to cover those up or try to ignore them or whatever, but God says, repent, turn, and I'm there to forgive and to restore you to your faith. Like the people of the Old Testament, we have our yes, but moments. Often we treat these as, hey, it's not a big deal. What's the big deal about all that? You know, we might say everybody's doing it, or Christianity isn't about rule following, it's about grace. Um, Jesus loves me no matter what. That's what's important. I can just kind of do this. As long as I know Jesus loves me, everything's okay. We try to make those kinds of excuses, When we said yes to Jesus, we said yes to living a life that pleases him. No matter how countercultural the Christian life is, no matter the consequences, no matter our personal preferences or our personal desires. So how do we get to the place where our yes means yes? Yes means yes in following Jesus, or yes means yes in even how we react with people around us. Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount and Pastor Trinity about a year ago did a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're just going to look at some of those verses again today. They're in Matthew chapter 5, if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 5, um, and it talks about our yes being our yes. And we're going to start in verse 37, it's kind of an overview of what we're going to look at today. Verse 37 says, let what you say be simply yes or no, anything more than that comes from evil. This passage is talking about, that we're going to be looking at, it's talking about oath or promise-keeping and about being honest. Jesus was talking about keeping the law of the Old Testament and he was explaining in this passage that in some cases a person could keep the letter of the law and still break the law because they're breaking the principle of the law. The Pharisees and religious leaders were expert at keeping the letter of the law, at least on the outside in their public persona. But Jesus said this, back up in verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that statement would have shocked the crowd he was talking to. Because the Pharisees, they were the gold standards. That's what everybody was trying to be like. They were the ones that that were on this high pedestal of being the, the law keepers in that religious time. So they're thinking, how can we possibly exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, how right the Pharisees lived. Um, They're the ultimate example. And Jesus is pointing out that technically obeying the law is not enough if the spirit of the law is broken. In verses 21 and 23, he goes on and says, "'You have heard that it was said to those of old, "'You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. "'But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment.' Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be reliable to the hells of fire. Jesus was explaining that technically innocent of murder, you can be technically innocent of murder, but still have murderous thoughts and ideas in your head. Um, And you can have those thoughts towards somebody without, uh, without actually physically murdering them, and it's the same thing. He goes on in 27 and 28 and talks about being technically innocent of adultery, but having lustful thoughts and desires that destroy the purity of your thoughts. He goes on in 31 and 32 and talks about the technical and legal terms for divorce, but explains that having the right paperwork doesn't justify going against God's standards for marriage. In this passage, he finishes up with teaching about telling the truth in verses 33 and 37. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. In that day, people made oaths and promises. And a lot of times, if they were a big public oath or promise, they would say something like, um, as God is my witness, I will make this oath or promise. I will make this contract as God is my witness. And so they were calling on God to witness this event. But also, if they broke that oath, calling on God to go ahead and punish them for breaking the oath. So it was kind of a big, serious deal when you, when you declared, as God is my witness. But other times, they might be making a private oath between two parties. It wasn't as big a deal. wasn't as big a thing. And so they might say something like, I'll swear by heaven, or I'll swear by Jerusalem, or I'll swear by the earth. And we do that same kind of thing. You know, as a kid, cross my heart and hope to die you know, to emphasize how important this thing is, and I'm not telling a lie kind of thing. Or we say, I swear on my mother's life, or I swear on a stack of Bibles, whatever it is. The idea was that swearing by anything but God gave them some wiggle room to break a promise. Because if I swear by God and, and are asking for him to condemn me, uh, punish me for breaking that oath, that's a big deal. But if I swear by Jerusalem or by one of these other things, it's a lesser kind of swear. And I have some wiggle room. If circumstances change, I can get out of the contract. And it's kind of like, oh, well, God's not going to punish me because I didn't swear by God. It's kind of that wiggle room, putting a loophole in that promise. Jesus was teaching that making a promise with a loophole is not a promise at all. Sometimes people coming to faith or people living out their faith have those loopholes that they've built in, at least in their mind. Yes, Jesus, I want to follow you. Yes, I want to go to heaven. Yes, I want to have you bless me, all those kinds of things. But I know you're a forgiving God. I know that I can do this thing over here that I know doesn't please you. But then as soon as I'm done doing it, I'll confess it, you'll forgive me, I'm on with life, and I can just keep on doing that. So I can live my life any way I want, and you're still gonna do this because that's the loophole that you've created because you, if I confess my sins, you're faithful to forgive those sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness and I can just keep on doing that. That's not why God did that. Um, the confession and, and, and his forgiveness is wonderful. It's something he offers us, but it's not made to be able to do, go and sin and do whatever you wanna do without following Jesus. Jesus asks us to simply say yes or no and stand on the integrity of, Of our word. As believers, we're expected to be truthful in all circumstances, even when it harms us. I came across a passage in Psalm 15, 1 and 2, that's really interesting. It says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who will live with you eternally? Who will dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is good and speaks truth in his heart, and who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. In other words, when I make a promise, if circumstances change, even if it costs me money, if it costs me friendships, if it costs me public whatever, because I made that promise, I'm still going to fulfill it, even if it hurts me personally. That's what he's calling us to do with our yes be yes and our no be no. So what are your yes but moments? Now, we're not going to fill out a survey this morning (laughs) to see what those are. But many of us have said, yes, I believe Scripture is true and it's God's word. Yes, I'm a believer and I've committed my life to Jesus Christ. Yes, I want my friends to know Jesus too. But I love him or her. What can be so wrong with that? But, you know, when it comes to money stuff, why should I tithe or give? You know, the church has enough money anyway. Besides, I'm I'm saving for that dream vacation that I've always dreamt about. But... Yes, Jesus, you're important in my life, but you're probably, to be honest, you're probably in number two or three because right now my family takes priority over everything, whether it's serving, whether it's my time, whether it's money, whatever it is, family is number one, and you're down a couple (laughs) levels, but you're still important to me, God. So I'm a youth pastor. If I was teaching this lesson with high school students, at this point, I would probably say something like, you need to get rid of your butts." And then I would probably show an exercise video like Buns of Steel. And then I'd probably say something like, not those butts. <laughs> but since it's a sunny morning, I would never go there, just so you know. Um, but how do we keep our yes being yes and our commitments to Jesus and eliminate our butts? Four different things. And these are in your notes if you care to look at those. First one is be honest. Recognize our excuses and own up to them. That's one of the hardest things, is recognize those things that we're making excuses about. Our butts, our butts are simply sinful excuses that go against what we know pleases God. So be honest. The second is to confess and repent. Telling God we are sorry and we want to change this behavior, we want to turn around. Ask God for strength through the Holy Spirit to be faithful to our commitment. Third, thank God for his grace and forgiveness. You don't have to beg. God is waiting for us to confess, turn around, and he wants to bless us. He wants to restore that relationship between him and us, um, but we have to confess those sins. And he is faithful to forgive us. We don't have to beg for forgiveness. It's a recognizing that what we've done and confessing that before God. And then fourth is walk each day in the knowledge that you are a friend of God and he calls you faithful. God loves that relationship with us. He wants to have that. He wants to have that restored and continue on. And we fail at this all the time. It's like, yes, I want to follow you, God, but this over here, I just want to take this part and do it on my own. God wants to continue to restore that relationship just like he did with those in Hebrews chapter 11 that are called the heroes of faith because they learned what it was to confess and repent and be restored to that relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, I just thank you for um, your loving forgiveness. Thank you that you are there with open arms to care for us. Thank you that you desire a relationship with us. Thank you that you want more than just us to have fire insurance to go to heaven, but you really want a relationship here that is an example of the people, but also an example of our families, and that is pleasing to you and pleasing to us when we follow you.